Well, good morning. morning. We come to a very um, challenging uh, section in Peter's letter, and uh, like as we did in the opening of chapter two, we'll be spending, uh, we're moving slowly through uh, the remainder of the chapter as well because there's a lot of content here. Uh, Why don't you, before we do that, let's uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do thank you uh, that we have. Freedom uh, to worship you, freedom to assemble, to gather together in your name without fear of uh, arrest or imprisonment. Father, we we ask that uh, you would help us to um, make use of this freedom in a way that honors you, uh, that honors our neighbor as well, that we would bear witness to the truth and the beauty and the glory of your gospel. Father, as we hear, uh, continue to hear news of Uh, awakenings and revivals taking place uh, not only on Christian campuses, but now it appears spreading to campuses that are uh, state universities and and what we consider secular colleges. We we continue to pray for revival and awakening in our land, that uh, all men and women would recognize the, the authority, the lordship, the beauty, the grace, and the mercy of God our Father, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the marvelous work of your Holy Spirit in bringing men and women to the knowledge of who Jesus is, confessing faith in him, following him uh, into baptism, and then growing as disciples, trusting in him day by day uh, as they serve him. Help us to do the same, Father. We are called to be holy people. You have made us holy by the gracious work of your Son and the continuing work of your Spirit in our lives. We worship you and acknowledge you as God our Father, our Savior, and the one who gives us life. Help us, Lord, in all things to honor you, to fear you, to worship you, that we might experience more and more of your grace, mercy, and awesome love. Father, uh, speak to us now from your word, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said, this is a, a, a challenging word uh, in, in sense of the way it begins. So in, in unpacking what Peter says here, we need to remember one basic rule of Bible study, which is simply that context is king. Context rules overall, so that if we are to understand what Peter says, uh, we're going to look specifically at verses 13 to 17, but if we're going to understand what Peter means in the rest of his letter, particularly with regard to this word be subject or submit, we have to understand what it means in the context in which he uses it and the context in which um, this command, be subject, appears is governed by what Peter has said before it, specifically in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, and, and, and specifically and particularly verse 12, where Peter has told us, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So that is going to be the overarching uh, context, if you will, from which everything else Peter is going to say will follow. If you remember, last week I said that verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, they they act like a hinge. They connect everything that Peter said uh, before um, this and with everything else he's going to say after this as well. So he has told us, up to verse 10 of chapter 2, every honorable thing that God has done for us through Christ. Now following that, from chapter 2, verse 11 onward, 
Peter is very interested in telling us how we are to live in light of what God has done for us. That starts with keeping our conduct among the Gentiles, unbelievers, so honorable that they will see what we do, see our good deeds, and they will glorify God on the day of visitation. And depending upon how you interpret day of visitation, it can mean either the day of judgment, when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and render account for the things that we have done, or, as I think it, it means likely in context, on the day when they are visited, if you will, by the Holy Spirit, their heart is open to the truth of the gospel, and they glorify God by confessing faith in Christ and coming into the kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus. Peter is concerned that we keep our conduct honorable for two essential reasons. First, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, he says, a holy nation, a people set apart as God's own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then secondly, by keeping our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, they will in fact glorify God by coming to faith in him through the things that we do, by our lifestyle, by our behavior. So as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, we are called then to glorify God by the way that we live. So that if we're a holy people, we should live holy lives. And that really is going to be the big idea, not only for this text this morning, but really for the rest of the book. Holy people live holy lives. And holy people live holy lives by being subject to every human institution, or a better translation would be every human creature. And Peter's going to specify what that is. In the immediate context, every human creature is the emperor or the governors that are appointed by him. Every human creature is going to be slaves respecting their masters. It's going to be uh, wives respecting their husbands, husbands loving their wives, and then regarding and loving our neighbor as ourselves as we move through the rest of the letter. Then when you get into chapter 5, Peter gives specific instructions that the spiritual leaders in the community are to be subject, if you will, to the ones that they lead as responsible overseers as well. So holy people live holy lives. And in the immediate context of verses 13 through 17, the way that we're going to break down the text this morning, we'll see that holy people glorify God by being good citizens. They glorify God by being good neighbors, and we glorify God by having our priorities in the right order. So let's, let's look at the first one, which is a good place to start. It's always a good place to start with the first one. Holy people glorify God uh, by being good citizens. The key phrase here is be subject, literally submit. Now, we'll get to what that means in just a moment, but you have to understand similar instructions like this have already appeared in the New Testament, if you have been reading the New Testament. Paul says something very similar in Romans 13.1. He says, Let every person submit to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, there, uh, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Romans 13.5 um, says, Therefore one must submit not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And then in Titus 3.1 and 2, Paul says, Remind them, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
And I didn't include it here, and it, it, the, the exact reference doesn't come to mind, but it's in John 14 when Jesus is speaking with Pilate. Uh, um, and um, No, it's not John 14. <laughs> Bear with me. When words come on the, wor- on the spur of the moment, my, my, uh, my memory disk slips a groove. So it's actually, it's in John 19. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, actually John 18, um, John, uh, Pilate basically asks Jesus to defend himself, and Jesus says nothing. And then uh, basically Jesus, and, and Pilate gets annoyed with Jesus. Don't you realize I have power over your life? And Jesus says in John 18.11, you would have no... John 19.11, excuse me. I had just one of these days. You know what happened this morning? I was working on my sermon, and I went to save it, and the entire thing disappeared. So if, if this seems a bit scrambled, that's why. So, I mean, it was all there. And then it was gone. And I have some of it, but we'll... Figured out anyway. John 19:11. Jesus says, "You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin." So even Jesus recognizes that whatever authority exists is rendered by God to those who are in power, which is what Paul says is both in Romans and in Titus, and what Peter says here as well. So this word "submit" it raises some hackles with us, I think. But I think the problems that it raises, this idea of, of submission, um, I think has to do more with the fact that we're Americans than it does Christians. It has more, I think, to do with our idea of, of Western democracy and what we consider to be liberty. We were not raised, many of us were not raised in a, in a situation where there was an emperor or a king or a dictator. So we read Peter's words and we immediately sort of stiffen up. We don't like that word submission. But remember, Peter prefaces this by saying be subject or submit for the Lord's sake. Remember, John in, Jesus, in John 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Jesus is submitting himself to Pilate's authority. Even though Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe, he is submitting himself. And we have read in chapter 2 already that Jesus submitted himself to suffering on the cross so that we might have salvation by grace through faith. So Jesus, if you will, sets this example for what subjection, what submission to earthly authorities looks like. Because when he submitted himself to earthly authorities... He did so by entrusting himself to one who judges justly. So that's the reason why we are able to submit to earthly authority is because we serve one who is higher and who has established that authority. And so our freedom in Christ allows us to be subject to all people. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians, that I have become, he will, you know, all things to all people so that by some means I may save some. So we, ad- we adapt ourselves to specific situations by subjecting ourselves uh, to the needs of those so that we might bring Christ into their lives. If you think about it, the command to submit is really not that different than Jesus' 
statement with regard to what is the second greatest commandment. That we love our neighbor as ourselves. What do you think you're doing when you love your neighbor as yourself? You are submitting yourself to your neighbor. You are putting their needs above your needs. And that kind of subjection, says Peter, on a, on a very local level is indicative of how we submit on a broader level to those in authority. That we are conferring to our neighbor a certain level of authority by loving them for the Lord's sake so that they may see what we do, they may see our love for them, especially if we don't get along with our neighbor, especially if our neighbor is a bit cantankerous or prickly, which is one of my favorite words. You have a prickly neighbor, you win them to Christ, not by being prickly in return. Right? When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile back. But he gave himself for their neighbor. So I think when we see that word submit, we react to it in a way that I think is more indicative of our cultural and societal background than our true understanding of what the gospel is requiring of us. We must submit for the Lord's sake because it's an act of worship when we do. We just got this morning, you know, we got an email from our accountant and we got our tax returns back and it's like, got to pay them, right? You got to pay them. And you get to a certain age and you begin to collect Social Security and you got to pay tax on that. I've already paid tax on it. I got to pay tax again. But you do it because it's an act of worship. It's a form of submission. This is also in keeping with Peter's own experience in terms of submitting to uh, the local authorities, the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. Because in Acts 10, Peter responds to a summons by Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Cornelius sends for Peter in response to an angelic visitation. At the same time, Peter had a vision that he would be visited by three men. And Peter goes to Cornelius, a Roman, a Gentile, and immediately, this is, I mean, classic Peter, he's standing before this Roman, this Gentile, knowing that God has prepared this moment. And Peter says, you know, it's not lawful for me as a Jew to pay attention or even visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone uncommon or unclean. So he submits not only to God's call upon his life, but he submits to Cornelius as a Roman centurion. And the fruit of Peter's submission, Luke tells us that as Peter is preaching the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his household. And they be, some of them began to speak in, in, in other languages. And as a result of that, they are baptized. They, they confess faith in Christ and are welcomed into the kingdom. So by subjecting himself to Cornelius, Peter is used by God to bring him into the kingdom. Remember, even Jesus submitted himself to every human creature as well. Not just to Pilate, but he says in, uh, in Mark 10, 43 and 45... Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve.
to give his life as a ransom for many. And then again in Luke 22, 24 to 27, the good doctor tells us a dispute among, arose among them, meaning the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The irony here is this isn't a night that Jesus is betrayed. <laughs> this is at the Last Supper. This is at the communion table. So just imagine, you know, you, we gather here next Sunday for communion, and, a, and an argument begins to break out among the pastors, like which one of them is the greatest. It's like, what is going on there? But Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. So as Pastor John was praying this morning, I was thinking, are you broken? Christ is among you now as one who serves, as one who is pierced for your transgressions, as one who is pierced to heal your brokenness. Are you, are you hurting this morning? Are you in emotional or physical pain? Christ is among us this morning as one who serves, who has been betrayed, and who knows the pain of being turned against. Are you doubtful this morning? Wrestling, perhaps, with your faith. Not even sure that you believe God is. Jesus is among us here this morning as one who serves, who even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he knelt and asked that this cup of suffering would pass from him, submitted to the Father's will, because that is where he found his greatest joy. That is where he found his peace. That is where he found relief. That is where he found that moment of certainty, that in the midst of that doubt, here comes this sense that this is what God has called me to do. So whatever is your station this morning, wherever you are on your pilgrimage with Christ, understand that Christ is among us all as one who serves, who submitted himself not only to his heavenly Father, but to every human creature, including us. While we were his enemies, he submitted to the Father's will to die for us, that we might, by his grace, be called by him, friend. I am among you, Jesus says, as one who serves, who calls us friends. Because he delights then in telling us as his friends all that the Father intends for us if we are willing to listen, to be obedient, and to serve in his name. So as Christ submits to us, if you will, by dying for us, he calls us now to submit to him that we might glorify God, that we might do good works, that our neighbor would see them and then come to behold the goodness and grace of God as well. Because included in Peter's commandment that we be subject or submit ourselves is in fact submitting ourselves to governing authorities, to government and to uh, officials who bear specific titles with regard to public safety and, and all of that. Peter specifies what he means by every human creature. 
He says, whether it be to the emperor, meaning the king, Caesar, or whether to the governors like Pilate, these unjust men that he appoints, because even unjust governors do keep the law and do ensure public order. When I mentioned last week we lived in Canada, and one of the, th- one of the fundamental differences we learned between, uh, let's say, Americans' attitude toward government and Canadians' attitude toward government is summed up by one line in our Declaration of Independence, right? Because we believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what distinguishes us as Americans. Canadians, we came to realize, value peace, government, and good order. There's a big difference there. Right? Rugged individualism, I'm going to pursue happiness on my terms, but I'm not going to do it outside the boundaries of what's going to preserve good order and peace in the culture. So there's a difference there. And so we come at this text based on our cultural understanding as well. But what does Peter mean when he says be subject? What does he mean when he says submit? Well, one thing he cannot mean is that he is calling us toward an unquestioning obedience of government. That's, that's not possible from the text. Because suppose for, for a moment, as did happen under Roman rule, that a law is passed requiring us to reject our faith and no longer meet in assembly, as is the case in communist countries or countries that are hostile to Christianity. We would not obey that law. We would not obey that rule. We would push against it. We would resist it because that that calls us to obey an authority that is under God's authority. Our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate obedience is to God and God alone. So it can't mean unquestioning obedience But at the same time, we can't weaken the force of what Peter is saying here. We're not anarchists. (laughs) On the one hand, we're not Antifa. On the other hand, we're not the folks that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. We are to be good, law-abiding, even reluctantly (laughs) tax-paying, kind-hearted, right? Children-loving, dog-liking, or cats, people whose lives reflect the image and the glory of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. I know there's, I mean, there, there are all sorts of lines you could draw on the political spectrum. Peter's not interested in that. He just paints with a broad brush, broad brush here. We live under the authority of God. And under that authority, we have freedom to submit to those in government over us. And like Paul in in Romans 13, Peter tells us to submit to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. But he tells us to submit to them, not obey them. That may sound like a distinction without a difference, but it isn't. Because to submit is to simply place yourself under the authority of one, is to recognize that you have a lower place. Most of us work for someone else. So you are, when you go to work each day and you punch the clock on time, what are you doing? You're submitting to your boss. Because that's what a good employee does. You show up on time 
and you put in a, a good day's work, and then you check out, and then you come back the next day, and you complete your tasks and assignments in a timely manner. That's a form of submission. It's recognizing that you are in the subordinate role and someone is in the, in the superior role. It's simply what is being said here. But should you be asked by your employer or by your government to do something that violates your conscience, goes against God's will, if loving your neighbor requires you to do something that goes against what Scripture clearly says ought not to be done, you don't have to do that. There are consequences for that, naturally. But like Peter and John tell the Jewish council in Acts 4, whether it is right in your eyes to obey God or not, you judge. We cannot help but speak of the things that we have heard and seen about this man, Jesus. Even Jesus called out the difference between submission and obedience. In Matthew 23, Jesus is before, in Matthew, before Jesus launches into this excoriating diatribe against the Pharisees, read Matthew 23 and say, whoa, that's not the Jesus I knew about. Before Jesus launches into his diatribe against the Pharisees, he tells the disciples, practice and observe whatever the Pharisees tell you, but do not do what they do. Practice and observe everything they tell you, but don't do what they do. So you apply the same thing. Submission is not obedience. It is not unquestioned obedience. It is simply recognizing that we have a role in society and we play out that role as obedient servants of God, not anyone else. So the command to submit is not absolute. It represents a general command. Generally speaking... We obey laws that are in keeping with God's laws. We should, admit, we should submit to those who govern over us. But no human authority, no human authority, government, government, boss, husband, wife, parent, teacher, no human creature has the right to command us to do something that is contrary to God's will. That's an absolute <laughs> And here again, Peter is speaking from experience. I mentioned Acts 4, and I'll just read the quote in full, because the Jews, remember, in Acts 3, Peter and John heal a man who is lame from birth. And they begin, and Peter preaches this amazing sermon in, in, in Acts 3. And then he's, he and John are hauled in before the Jewish council, and they, you know, the Jewish council are pulling their hair out, saying, look, we told you, what are you doing? We told you not to preach or teach anymore in this man's name. And then Peter makes this amazing statement. He says, well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, some of you have wrestled with this. Some of you have, when during the midst of the pandemic, when it was at its height, you were challenged whether you would be vaccinated or not in terms of keeping your job. Some of you chose not to and you lost your job. Because you wanted to obey a higher law. It was well within your right. Some of you are public school teachers and you are going to face and are facing some serious challenges with regard to instruction with regard to gender fluidity and items and issues related to that. 
in terms of students telling you, I want to be spoken to by this or that pronoun. And you have a choice to make whether or not you will do that. Some of you work in in public offices where the same kinds of things are being done. And there are choices that you will have to make, whether to obey God's law or to say, well, I'm just... God knows my heart. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna go with this, and I'm. Gonna, I'm just going to. I'm gonna not separate myself, and I'm gonna just work within the system as salt and light, and and try my best to follow Christ as long as I can. You must judge that. You must decide that in terms of what you are most comfortable with doing. But whatever choice you make. Like Peter, I would urge you, do it for the Lord's sake. Do it out of obedience to him in the sense that this is what your conscience, after prayer and and fasting and consultation, has led you to decide. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or, or God, you must judge. For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's a challenge. And I don't envy you that challenge. But this I know that the Holy Spirit is there to help, to guide, to lead, to direct, and to provide whatever decision it is that you make. So holy people are good citizens. Holy people also glorify God by being good neighbors. This is verses 15 and 16. Peter now begins to sort of flesh out what this looks like. He says, for this is God's will, he says, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we prove that we're good citizens by being good citizens, by living, if you will, subjecting ourselves to uh, what, what the, you know, the ruling authorities tell us is lawful, right? Paying our taxes, obeying the speed laws. We don't break into our neighbor's homes to take their goods simply because they have a bigger TV than we do. Or they have a really nice ride. I like that car. I'm just going to steal it. We don't do that. Right? <laughs> right? What we do, however, is by doing good deeds, we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And here, again, you, you know, the, the Bible is, pulls no punches when it talks about those folks who don't fear the Lord or walk in his ways. Because that's what the word fool or foolish refers to. Whenever the word fool or foolish appears in Scripture, it refers to someone who is not walking in the fear of the Lord or walking in his ways. This comes right out of Proverbs, right? Because the beginning of uh, the fear fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And, And a fool doesn't fear God. A fool doesn't walk in God's ways. So our our responsibility is by living such good lives that our opponents whatever accusation they make, will be found to just be motivated, not out of any basis in reality, but just the fact that they hate anyone who claims to follow Christ. As one scholar says, opponents will be discovered to be animated by hatred, lacking any objective ground for their criticism of believers. When I read this, I think of, you know, you probably have read the reports as well. You know, there are people who pray outside of abortion clinics. And they're just praying. And they're arrested. <laughs> There's no legitimate reason to arrest them. They haven't done anything. They've committed no act of violence. There was a woman and a man in Great Britain who prayed silently outside of an abortion clinic. And they were arrested. 
Peter would say that's the kind of good behavior that puts to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Because how is that offensive? How is that hurtful? You tell me. I don't know. But the fact is, the simple act of doing that prayer or you know, being kind to your neighbor is a way of winning our neighbors to Christ. Be aware, too, that Peter is not naive. He is a, he's a street, he's a fisherman. Right? He's a salty guy. He knows the way the world works. He knows that government is corrupt and can be corrupt. He knows his, his history. He knows that Israel was ruled by tyrants during their lifetime, that Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, and even Caesar were not nice men. Goodness knows, even Israel, in her own history, in her own monarchy, were governed by men who did evil in God's sight. So Peter's not naive as to the corrupt nature of government. He is saying, however, despite what they do, we are still responsible to live in a specific way. We cannot excuse our bad behavior by blaming others for theirs. That's the whole point of verse 16, where rather than seeing verse 16 as saying live as free men, the, the dominant verb here is submit. So it's submit as free men. Submit, he says, as uh, using your freedom not as an excuse for evil, but submit as servants of God. So that we don't justify breaking the law or, or doing evil, if you will, simply because others have done it instead. There's no whataboutism when it comes to following Christ. We've been freed from slavery to sin, says Peter, so we are to behave in a particular way. Free men, right? Free people. Our freedom and slavery from sin has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And our submission then is motivated by the fear of God, not the fear of man. And we must not use our freedom, he says, as a cover-up or an excuse for doing evil, even if we think it's in the name of Jesus. Um, we should never mindlessly obey the commands of government, but we, we, must, we should um, obey what government tells us out of the sense that we are serving God, not them. And then he says we should submit as slaves or bondservants of God, um, that we don't enjoy unrestricted freedom as followers of Christ. And Paul says this in Romans 6, you don't sin that grace may abound. Um, in fact, that the only way that you can be truly free, says Jesus, is if you take his yoke upon you and learn from him and follow him. Only those who are slaves of God are genuinely free. You, you, you read uh, uh, Romans 6, and at the end of Romans 6, we, you know, we, we always quote Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The verses leading up to Romans 6.23 talk about Paul as saying, when you consider your former way of life, that you were slaves to sin, what, what did that get you? Like, what, was that, what was that earning you? What was that gaining you? He says, understand that the wages of that lifestyle are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So you exchange the so-called freedom of your slavery to sin for the freedom that comes through salvation by grace through faith in Christ by serving him as a bondservant. And so we obey the government because we are God's bondservants, not wards of the state. 
And once again, no government, no human creature possesses absolute authority. Peter did not expect us to give government or any human authority unquestioned obedience so that our ultimate loyalty is not to whomever lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's not to whoever resides at the governor's mansion in Trenton. We should never feel compelled to do what government says if what government says runs contrary to what the scriptures say God says is right and good. Because we are God's servants first, and thereby we have a standard by which to evaluate the orders that are handed down by government. That alone is what branded Christians as traitors under Rome. Like, I have to pay taxes, you have to pay taxes. Sometimes that's writing a check or, or doing it electronically. That's all, and it's done. It's a commercial transaction, boom, over. In Peter's day, paying taxes was both a commercial and religious transaction. Because you, you brought your, your bag of drachmas, or whatever, bearing Caesar's image, and you plopped it down on the taxpayer's, the taxman's table. You reached over, you took a pinch of incense, you threw it in the fire, and you said, Caesar is Lord, and then you walked on. Right? Christian can't do that. Pays his taxes, and he walks away. <clears throat> Excuse me, you forgot something. I gave you my money. <clears throat> we need a confession. Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Arrest that man. Right? For that act alone, Christians were considered unpatriotic, atheistic, and hostile. It's not all that different from the accusations that are made against Christians today who want to do the sincere and good thing in Christ's name. Whether it's stand for pro-life, whether it's to stand for clear lines between what is male and what is female, what is a man and what is a woman, what is right and good and true. Just for taking those stands, you're, you're transphobic, you're homophobic, you're misogynistic, you're racist, you're bigoted. All because you're just simply saying, no, but this is what the Bible says is true. No, 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 no. You can't do that. So it's not all that different in terms of taking a stand, standing for what is true and right and good. But by doing what is right and true and good, we are being good neighbors because we're telling the truth. We're practicing the truth. And it's more than that. It's in keeping with the will of God. And then the last thing is that holy people glorify God by having their priorities in the right order. The last verse, verse 17, ends with there are four commands, one beginning with honor and ending with honor. So you honor everyone. You respect everyone. Right? You help older people across the street. Right? You shovel their driveway when it snows. You drive your neighbor who, who, who's ill to the hospital. You, you're a good and kind and generous person because that's how God treated us when we were unkind and miserly and hostile toward him. So we, that's the first command. Then we are to love the brotherhood. 
there's a unique bond that exists among Christians such that we can regard each other as brother and sister. It's, it's, it warms my heart when I come here on Tuesdays, and, and uh, I, forgive me any if, for embarrassing you and Lonnie, but it warms my heart when I see Lonnie and she asks, how is Auntie Jill doing? And I say, well, she's doing better. And then Lonnie says, that's because I'm praying for her. Oh, it's like, oh. It's like, it's like God bless you. But that's the kind of bond that exists. A text, a phone call, a visit, a meal. Just presence. Just being there. It's, it, it enables us to, to understand one another and love each other in a way that the world looks at it and it just can't figure out. And it's one of the things that Jill and I have, have come to appreciate more and more about this marvelous fellowship that we share in Christ's name. This familial sense, this, this sense which... I know we're not perfect, meaning all of us. But I will say, I want to commend you as, as, a, as a congregation, as followers of Christ, for being sincere in your desire and in your discipleship. That there is, as Jesus would say of uh, Nathaniel, there is no guile in you. And I attribute that to the work of the Holy Spirit. I attribute that to the fact that there is good pastoral leadership here that encourages and holds accountable all of us to walk in a way that brings glory to God, that allows us to be consistent, that our words and our actions match that there is no hypocrisy, but there is a, a blessed consistency borne by the Holy Spirit. And, the, which brings me to the third command, as a result of the fear of God. Because that alone is what governs what we do, this holy reverence for one upon whom we call his Father, who judges impartially the deeds of all. Because we all know that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will give account for the things done in the body, whether good or evil. And knowing that Christ has already borne our judgment and borne our punishment, what we will present to him on that day are the good works that we have done in his name as a result of his grace and the power of his spirit in our lives. So the things that we do, whether it's worshiping God or paying our taxes or or being good citizens, all of that are a function of the things. This is what I'm going to present to Jesus on the day. Here's my IRS bill. I paid them, okay? <laughs> so I didn't cheat on my taxes. I did all of this. Here, here's as much as I was able to do in the time that I had. These are the things that I did in your name, for your glory, and for the good of my neighbor. And then he ends by saying, you honor the emperor. You show respect for him. You put the emperor in his place. You fear God, but you honor the emperor. But it's always fear God first above all. We are free citizens. But rather than use our freedom as a cover-up for evil, we use our freedom as a means of glorifying God by being subject to all the governing authorities. Now, I'll, I'll end with, with a, a quote from Bonhoeffer's classic, The Cost of Discipleship. Near the end of the chapter um, called The Visible Community, 
Bonhoeffer writes this about the church and its place in the world. And it, it does have some correlation to the, the hymn that we sang with regard to you know, these pilgrim days uh, as well. He says, Bonhoeffer writes this, In the world, the Christians are a colony of, a true, of their true home. In the world, the Christians are a colony of the true home. They are strangers and aliens in a foreign land, enjoying the hospitality of that land, obeying its laws and honoring its government. At any moment, they may receive the signal to move on. They will strike their tents, leaving behind um, all their worldly friends and connections, following only the voice of their Lord who calls. They leave the land of their exile and start their homeward trek to heaven. Now, what's amazing about this is that Bonhoeffer wrote this in 1937. It was four years after Adolf Hitler came to power as chancellor in Germany, began Nazi rule. Many of Bonhoeffer's Lutheran pastor friends, to his dismay and, and chagrin and disappointment, supported Hitler. Someone even so far as to proclaim him as, as a kind of a savior, messiah figure. Bonhoeffer was so taken aback by this that he started a, a secret seminary in 1935 to, in his words, train men who understood what it meant to follow Jesus with their whole beings to be real disciples. The Gestapo shut down that seminary in 1935, or 1937, and Bonhoeffer simply took it underground. Now, was he wrong to defy his own government by starting an illegal seminary? Was he wrong to take it underground once the Gestapo shut it down? Certainly in the eyes of the Nazi government in Germany, the answer is yes. However, according to Peter, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to them or to listen to God, you must judge. But we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. God help us to do the same in the coming days, for we do not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are challenging verses, these are challenging texts, but we have your Son, we have your Spirit, both as example and guide to help us serve you and to trust you and to continue to entrust ourselves to you as we seek, O Lord God, to honor, to, to, to fear you and to honor those whom you have placed in authority. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.